Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, comedy legend Dan Aykroyd. A bar. I, I, I feel right at home already. Oh, what, what a setting. Oh, very good, very good. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for doing this. Your mother call you Daniel? No, I was named Dan. Okay, all right. How about yours? Oh, Daniel all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Then what Let you want to discipline Welcome me. to chaos. Well, thank, well, a pleasure to meet you, sir. Dan Aykroyd has made some of the most memorable films of the past 40 years. Aykroyd is one of the funniest people alive. He is a one-of-a-kind talent whose physical comedy, bold and imaginative screenwriting. Well, there's something you don't see every day. Sharp wit. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. And ability to transform into any character, whether silly. Astronauts to the moon. <laughs> or serious. I'm afraid we have to have a little talk, Hope. Just let me get out of my coat. I'll be right back. Has earned him an Oscar nomination and made him a comedy legend. Early on, it was a knack for improv that set Dan Aykroyd apart. After dropping out of college and joining the famed Second City Improvisational Troupe in Toronto, Aykroyd's natural talent earned him a role on the groundbreaking sketch comedy show Saturday Night Live. At just 23 years old, Aykroyd was the youngest member of the original cast. His impersonations were legendary. Welcome! I'm Juliet Child, and today we're going to make a holiday feast or Les Fêtes d'Oliday. And he created some of television's most dynamic and ridiculous characters. There's no other pair of Czech brothers who cruise and swing so successfully in tight slacks. Aykroyd's four years on Saturday Night Live helped turn it into one of the greatest sketch comedy shows of all time. After SNL, Aykroyd graduated to the silver screen, where he wrote and starred in a number of comedy classics. Doctor. 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 And Doctor. Well, we miss anyone? With over 100 writing and acting credits to his name, Aykroyd continues to influence and inspire generations of comedians. I met up with Dan Aykroyd in upstate New York at the grand opening of the first state-of-the-art museum dedicated to American comedy. 
Dan, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. An honor to meet you, sir. I always like to set the scene for our viewers. We're in Jamestown, New York, and you're here, we're here to help celebrate the opening of the National Comedy Center. It's worthy of celebration. It's really a terrific facility. I've seen museums all over the world, obviously, uh, you know, in my travels, and, and this one is first class. This is... I could spend a week inside the place. People from all over the world are going to come to this place. And, and, and now I've got an answer for young people who come to me and say, you know, how do I get into comedy? How do I get into writing stand-up? I'm, I'm going to say, go to Jamestown, the National Comedy Center, and start there. Yeah. Well, and Jamestown is also the birthplace uh, of Lucille Ball. Mm -hmm. Was she an influence on your becoming a comedian? Absolutely. No question about it. Lucy and Desi, Phil Silvers, Danny Thomas, all of the black-and-white TV shows in, uh, that we got... Uh, in Canada from, from the United States carriers. You know, Canadians benefited from two schools of humor. We had the CBC, uh, BBC uh, government-sponsored uh, comedies of, of, uh, of England and, uh, and, and uh, Canada, uh, where Lorne Michaels got started, and then we had all the black-and-white comedies from, from the States coming up into, uh, into our broadcast area there. So, uh, uh, you know, all of uh, Eve Arden, I loved her. She was fantastic, you know. And all those, all those great uh, black-and-white TV stars were major influences because their timing and the way they delivered uh, their, uh, their, their dialogue, and they, they were perfectionists, truly. And, uh, and the way that they, uh, you know, the way that they, 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 they did comedy, it was, it was, it was very, it was redefining uh, the ancient ways. And, um, you know, uh, everyone was, was a master of, of, of timing and, 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 and writing and, and just intelligent delivery. And so, uh, definitely an influence. Particularly loved Phil Silvers. He was he was he was just great. You know, hey, 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 why, why, Doberman, why, 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 hey, you brought a broad in here? What do you, why, hang it, how, you know, it was all that stuff. You know? Well, you know, you reached the pinnacle, become a world famous comedian, actor, Academy Award nomination, writer. But of recent years, at least, I don't see your name in the tabloids much. You're not in the media much. That's got to be purposeful. That is, you made a decision. Why? Well, uh, I had a great run, Dan. I had 30-some years in the motion picture business and worked with you know, Jessica Tandy, uh, Morgan Freeman, uh, Sidney Poitier, Robert Redford, uh, River Phoenix, uh, Belushi, uh, Landis, Reitman, Maddie Murphy, Bill Murray, uh, all these great stars, and, and uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, and, you know, it just came to the point uh, where, you know, uh, it evolved naturally that, that you know, my, my time was done in Hollywood, and, it, uh, and it's time for the new generation to come and pick it up. Uh, the Will Ferrells of the world now, the Zach Galifianakis's, you know. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I have no regrets at all. I, I, I really am grateful that I was, being, was, uh, was part of that community. Uh, and, uh, and also I'm excited by the new work that's happening now. And I, I go to all the new movies that, uh, that the kids are in today. Now, which of those roles did you like the most? Oh, although the Conehead, no doubt. I feel like an alien. I love the Conehead because the Conehead has a completely objective view of the world, and uh, and also is kind of a he's kind of a little bit of a, a, a prig, you know. He's uh, and uh, you know and kind of correct and and, and uh, has a good moral center. The, the Conehead. I love I love doing that character. I I would do that again if, if if we were to get another movie together. I don't. I'm not in a hurry to go working in movies again. I, <laughs> but I, I would I would definitely do the Conehead again. It's my it's my favorite character of all. 
Ronnie, may I have 55 words with you? The frightening statistics of young Earthlings mangling themselves in internal combustion vehicles on the night of prom ritual makes me insist that you use maximum safety awareness, return at the pre-designated time coordinates, and, in fact, take my car. Its reinforced alloy superstructure is far superior to that of your broken-down, rusted-out shitbox. Gee, thanks, Mr. Conehead. What do testing runways and being a mechanic have to do with being funny? Dan Aykroyd lets us into the secret when Dan Rather's big interview continues. Do odd jobs lead to normal comedy? Dan Aykroyd thinks so. Let's hear more on Dan Rather's big interview with Dan Aykroyd. What kind of kid were you? Tell me about your childhood. I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, I often compare it to Jim Carrey's childhood, who I think is a, a ter terrific physical comedian and, and just a, you know, had immense success. He's just a, a great, great artist. And, and he had a difficult childhood. And, and I think that the, the mag magnificence uh, and uh, the breadth of his talent comes out of the childhood that he had, where he was you know, working in a factory uh, where, with his dad at nights, you know, where polishing mag wheels and cleaning the bathrooms, and he used to make faces in the mirror. And I, I, I often think, you know, geez, I didn't have a tough childhood, but I went on to be funny. I guess there's two ways to do it. I had a great childhood. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. My parents worked for the federal government and um, were very supportive of what I was doing as, as, uh, as a kid. And I had great jobs for the government. I, I tested runways. I surveyed roads. I was a mechanic. I worked for the post office. Uh, I had a kind of a normal upbringing, you know, I worked for the penitentiary service and, and I had a, had a wonderful kind of normal upbringing and took all of that with me, all that experience with me when I did go to Toronto and eventually get into show business. So as a kid, I guess I was uh, curious, uh, active, uh, maybe hyperactive a little bit. Uh, we grew up on the, you know, in the, in the time of uh, when, you, when you put white sugar on your cereal in the morning, so uh, that was being done. And, um, but I had very understanding parents, and at 12 years old, they sent me to improv classes at Ottawa Little Theatre, and I took courses from a guy there named Brian Gordon, even long before I was even contemplating Second City. So when I came to Second City, I was prepared. I knew the techniques, I knew the games, I knew the people who had founded improv. And so I was very well equipped when I got to Second City. I'd already kind of uh, been through one of, the, one of the main courses. You said you had pretty close to an ideal childhood, mm -hmm. but you have webbed toes, you have one eye, one, one color, one yeah. the other. They used to call me dog eye, you know, in school. Whew, yeah. That couldn't have been easy. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, the where I grew up, you know, it was, it was a pretty, it was, it was Ottawa, but then there was Hull on the other side of the river, and uh, I, we, we grew up in Hull, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, a victim of uh, discrimination because I was an English-speaking kid in a French neighborhood. My mother was French-Canadian, fully uh, French-Canadian, and I had a little French, but the French guys would, uh, would beat me up on the way to school and throw my books around. And, uh, and so I kind of got toughened up and, and, and knew how to run fast and, and also how to take care of myself a little bit. And, and you know, sticks and stones hurt your, your bones, but, you know, words, words can't hurt you. I, I, I've taken the insults pretty well. Well, you've had this lifelong interest in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. You still carry a badge? You did. For I, I, was, I knew you'd ask me that, and I didn't. The only reason is because I crossed the Canadian, uh, the border, and you know, if you if you have a federal badge, you, I could have been locked up. But I have a 
tremendous collection of badges up north in, in Canada. And, and you usually uh, wear you, you usually well. Carry uh, this a is a this is an Ontario provincial police pin. This is just when I so when I, when I get stopped for speeding on the way home there uh, after this, uh, I'll be able to say, hey, I'm one. I'm a brother officer. The reason is my grandfather was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Staff Sergeant, um, and uh, he was uh, in the 30s when you know there was strike breaking going on and depression and. You know, he was a cop at a tough time in, in, in Canada. And uh, he, he, you know, uh, I guess from him I got, what I got is a respect for first responders. They work so hard. They're real heroes, you know, teachers, nurses, firemen, policemen, first responders like that. They're, they're my real heroes. And um, I, got to, I got to work with a couple of really outstanding men, uh, uh, Chief John Doyle in Harahan, Louisiana, and Chief uh, Peter Dale. Uh, they commissioned me uh, uh, to do some work with them down there, and we, we did work providing resources. and got to ride along many times and I served uh, in Hines County, Mississippi under the first uh, African-American sheriff in that county in history, uh, Tyrone Lewis. Uh, I worked with him uh, over a year to uh, harvest uh, some, uh, some ideas uh, about policing and, 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 and apply them and, uh, and, and did enjoy that. Well, you talked about being bullied some when you were very young. Mm -hmm. but by the time you got to what we would call middle school or junior high school, the record shows you were pretty much of a heller. Well, I was a rebel, no doubt about it. Uh, I guess, again, you know, having to get, wanting to strive for attention and also, when it's a very powerful thing, Dan, when you get laughs out of someone. If you get a laugh, it doesn't matter if it's a stranger, you're going to try to get another one. And so, for me, uh, imitating the teachers was better than listening to them. So I was going to a school, St. Pius X Minor Preparatory Seminary for Boys. This was a prep school for priests. And the reason I went there, my mother and dad said, well, we want you in the Catholic system. It's a better system than the public school system. Yeah, you've got to get into this school. You've got to get into this school. We're going in for an interview on Thursday. So we go into the interview, and Father Lunny's sitting across there. And, and uh, he looks at me and says, well, Dan, so you, you feel you've got a calling for the priesthood. You feel you have a vocation. You feel this is something you'd like to do. And this was my answer. Yeah, yeah, because my parents so wanted me to get into school. So yeah, your priesthood, yeah. Well, I lasted till grade 11 and met a lot of great guys uh, who went on to wonderful careers. And, uh, and, but, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was better to go out Friday nights, uh, you know, instead of going to the mass slots and serving mass, it was better to go out and sneak into the, the drive-in, you know. And so I did that kind of stuff. And Ottawa was a great city. And, uh, and you know, my, my summer jobs were wonderful and the friends I had were great. We had the whole run of the town. And... There was always some police force to run from. There were Mounties, Quebec police, there were Ontario police, <laughs> Ottawa police, Hull police, military police. So, you know, if you wanted to get in trouble and have some fun and get the adrenaline going, boy, there was a lot of opportunity for it there. And the other thing it had was all the embassies. Right. So we used to, I used to take my uncle's CBC credentials and I'd put my name on there and then get into these parties at the Russian embassy where the vodka and caviar were free-flowing. I'd pretend I was a reporter and ask questions and on out the, out the way, the, you know, I'd go. And uh, it, it was a great international city to grow up in. And as I, as I say, I, I took the whole bag of stuff with me, whatever I had, you know, and I took it to Second City and there used uh, all of the characters that I'd met in, in working for the government and, and, and all those jobs to, 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 uh, to write material. And now, live from the White House, ask President Carter. Do you have a question for the president? Uh, I, uh, I took some acid. <laughs> I'm uh, afraid to leave my apartment and I can't wear any clothes. 
Well, thank you very much for calling, sir. No, Please. No, just a minute, Walter. This guy's in trouble. I think I better try to chuck him down. Peter? Yeah. Peter, what did the acid look like? Um, they were these little orange pills. Were they barrel shaped? Uh, yes. Okay, right. You did some orange sunshine, Peter. I want to go back to Saturday Night Live. You helped to make Saturday Night Live. What do you think is the key? to its survival. Let's face it, it's been on television and been very successful for a very long time. That doesn't happen very often. Well, I think one of the first things is Lorne Michaels. You know, his drive, his understanding of humor and talent and, uh, and the whole composite of the show, um, I think that's the reason it's there. And his tenaciousness and hanging on and fighting the network uh, to stay um, with the sense of integrity that, that the show always had. I think that's the primary reason. And then also, from that, he picks just great talent. Look at the people that came after him. Us, you know, Hartman and Farley and, and uh, you know, Eddie Murphy and, and Farrell and, uh, oh, man, Wig and, you know, McKinnon, all, well, all the stars of, of today uh, and uh, all the stars that, that came after. Uh, he picks great talent. He picks great writers. And I think that the political... Um, situation in America now makes this humor more necessary than ever. And his, uh, you know, his uh, choice of, of, of the material to treat the, the political arena uh, is, is also uh, outstanding, the way he's got Alec there doing Trump and the way he had Jim Downey writing all of those pieces in the Bush years and uh, the people that he hires to, to parody uh, the politicians. And uh, we never, on Saturday Night Live, never took one side or the other. We just we just presented a parody of what the world is seeing. So it's not like they're like Jim Downey, who wrote some of the great um, material about Bush. Uh, you know, he's a Republican. You know, you'd think that was come from a Democrat's heart, but not really. And uh, so, ain't, ain't ain't too many divisions there politically at, at SNL. So I think it's the the, the political arena has always driven it. Uh, in our time, it was Nixon and the you know uh, the, uh, the the tapes and. And him praying before the the portrait and that that, that sketch of of, of uh, Belushi and I with him as Kissinger and you know I'm not a crook, Henry. You know that I'm innocent. Well, uh... <laughs> I am Henry. I had nothing to do with Watergate, the bugging of Watergate. I had nothing to do with the cover up. Well, nothing to do with the break in of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Well, nothing to do with the guy who was killed in Florida. What guy was killed in Florida? <laughs> and then Carter, we, we, we treated Carter and Ford. And so Saturday Night Live has always been uh, a place uh, for necessary satire. And, uh, and the political situation in America makes, uh, makes a rich field for it. You impersonated uh, President Nixon, mm -hmm. President Carter. Can you still do a reasonable Nixon? Uh, well, Dan, thank, thank you so much for, uh, for having me here today. Um, of course, uh, a lot has been said, um, but in the end, I, I believe, I believe that I did the right thing. I may have let some people down, but uh, for me at that time, see, the president, 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 he always said, uh, the president is not accountable, not accountable, Dan. And I think that's what the people should realize in the end, in the final analysis. I mean, you know, he, the guy is like, uh, you well, know, done. Don't want to put you in the spot. But it's always amazed me you could do that, which is, and not patting my own part, I was at the White House as correspondent, of course, during the next few years. I know, I know. Right on the money. 
But then to turn around and be able to do Jimmy Carter, mm -hmm. a completely, totally different personality mm -hmm. and character. Yeah, well, you know, Jimmy, he, 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 he was kind of kind of casual in ways of delivery and that southern style and, and nice. He just came across as a nice person, you know. And, uh, you know, on the way he talked, it's, it's, that's that southern drawl and the way he missed eye contact with people. It's a thing that he stressed. And it, it was fun to do him, but if... Uh, but your old boss there, um, Dan, I've got to say, or the Cronk, this is Walter Cronkite. And Dan, rather, you filled my seat and my shoes beautifully. There's not much more I can say. The career of Dan Rather lives up to what I set for him. And I believe he's the greatest newsman the world has ever seen. <laughs> this is comedy, folks. Clearly, Mark, well, it's I, comedy. You're up there in my but, estimation. Man, anyway. I, appreciate, I appreciate that. He ain't afraid of no ghosts, or is he? Dan Aykroyd dishes the paranormal when Dan Rather's big interview returns in a moment. Let's go to the spooky place with Dan Aykroyd, who talks about his life and films as Dan Rather's big interview continues. Released in 1984, Ghostbusters was a box office smash. It was the number one grossing comedy of the decade, and it has gone on to become a highly lucrative franchise. Both Ghostbusters films were co-written by Dan Aykroyd, who has long been fascinated by ghosts and the paranormal. Well, I want to talk about your career. We, we could spend this afternoon, tonight, and tomorrow talking about it. I do want to get back to it, but it occurs to me to ask you, you know, do you, do you fear most the Holy Ghost or the serious ghost of Ghostbusters? I think I'm going to give my respect to the Holy Ghost. I want I want him on my I want him my him on my side. But I have heard some frightening stories, you know, in my research about, well, like the uh, Ellis Island, you know, the park rangers there will tell you that that's a very active place. There's a lot of stuff going on there, um, and uh, and then you know you get you get people who are so credible telling you these these stories uh, that it's just and the Queen Mary. There's there's a, there's a couple of ghosts on the Queen Mary, and the, and you know one of the guides said, oh yeah, we. We, I, we've seen the little girl many times. She drowned in the swimming pool right. in the 40s, and, uh, and, and apparently she, she's still... So I think, I, I, I fear the Holy Ghost out of respect, but, you know, uh, I, I, would, I would probably turn and run if I saw a ghost. I don't think I'd hang out to, to chat, you know, and I'd, I'd, I'd reach right for my with equipment. You. You'd yeah. have to run hard to keep that out of me. Well, any chance of a real, honest Ghostbusters 3? Very, 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 very much so. Now. Let me say this about the girls' movie that they made. The, 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 it was really good. And Paul Feig made a good movie, and there's some great things in it. And the girls are great in it. I, just, it was, what, I was what, mad what? at him because he cost too much. Uh -huh. And I, I don't want to slag a fellow artist, but had it cost a little less, and had he maybe listened to some of our suggestions on budget, then there, there might have been another girls' movie. That would have been great. Um, I'm sorry that's not happening because, boy, they were terrific Ghostbusters. Kate and Melissa and, and, um, and Leslie were just, just great. Um, and, uh, and Kristen Wiig, of course. I, I love those, those women and I love their performances. And I, I, I wished for them that they would have been able to make another one. But, so that door is closed now. But, yes, to answer your question, there is a possibility of a, of a reunion with, uh, 
with the three remaining well, Ghostbusters. Well, we yeah. make a little news here. First of all, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted to make the point that you were talking about this was not Ghostbusters 3, it was the women Ghostbusters yeah, yeah. of 2016. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But we're talking about a full-blown third Ghostbusters. I think Ghostbusters. we've got a story that's going to work. And uh, it's being written now by a really, really uh, good filmmaker. I can't say uh, their names, but um, he, uh, they're uh, they're a good team, and they're uh, they're making a, they're making an effort to uh, to bring back all of the emotion and the spirit of the f of the first two movies, and and then take it into the 21st century with the vernacular that's needed today to get a but get across to well, the audience. Well, I'm not sure we may be making some news here, but I know for a long time, Bill Murray's reluctance, even refusal. Mm -hmm. to have anything to do with the sequel kept you from making the movie, partly, it, out, partly out of respect to him. It, it, it you know, he, yeah, it didn't, uh, yeah, we weren't going to do it without him, and, and, and uh, well, you know, I, I wish that we had done the second one sooner, but, you know, Billy was on to new things, and, you know, you can't drag a person to do a part unless he, he wants to do it, and he'd done the part of Venkman, and he thought he, that was fully explored, but, boy, he was great in the second movie. He's the greatest uh, comedic leading man in history. And, and, and uh, he was so terrific in that second movie. And the second movie holds up. There's some great stuff in there. The baby and Vigo and, and the river of slime. And, uh, and you know, just uh, I'm very proud of the second movie as well. And, and I think to answer your question, we, we may in the next couple of years be able to do a full reunion with, uh, again, taking it to the 21st century because there's a whole new vernacular now. There's a whole new essence of communication with audiences that we're going to have to hit. So, but I think we can do it. And... Bill Murray will or will not be in this, or is that yet to be decided? I think Billy will come. Yeah, the story's so good, and he'll he'll come, even if he plays a ghost. I don't know. <laughs> it's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. It won't hurt you. When he was cast on SNL, Dan Aykroyd became one of the show's breakout stars. They had to go to the Statue of Liberty to pick up their birth control devices. But it was his partnership with fellow comedian John Belushi that made him a comedy giant. The Blues Brothers skit debuted on SNL in 1978, and it was an instant hit. Soon, Belushi and Aykroyd turned it into a live show. Coming to you on a dusty road. An album. Good love, and I got a truckload. And a wildly popular feature film. The idea for the skit dates back to when Aykroyd and Belushi met. It was one night back in Toronto in November 1973 when Belushi stopped by a bar Aykroyd owned and they came up with the idea over drinks. The two became fast friends and collaborators. And pretty soon, Belushi and Aykroyd were being dubbed the Lennon and McCartney of comedy.
1982, tragedy struck when John Belushi died of an overdose. Well, we can't talk about the Blues Brothers, as we've touched on before, without talking about John Belushi. Oh, yeah. I know it's a difficult subject. No, not now, but I still love him and you know, remember him every day. Fair to say that it took you a long time to get over his death? It did. It took a couple of years. You know, I, we were, you know, he was 33, I was 29. We had these hit records, hit movies. We were about to embark on a new venture, um, touring and more music. So it was tough to lose my partner uh, at that time, and, and, and also the way he died, unfortunate that he died that way. Um, and uh, it was a good warning to, to our community that, that, that this could happen. Um, but, he died of a drug overdose. Yeah, he died uh, of a, a speedball con concoction. Uh, now, he had, uh, you know, he'd been smoking and drinking, and he, hadn't, he was out of shape. I often think if he was in better shape, he might have come through it. But again, you know, the woman who concocted it up and, and gave him the injection, she didn't want to kill him any more than I did. She, it was a mistake, and she was felt bad about it. It's just John played in that arena, and that's dangerous. Um, but he was a wonderful, literate man. He knew all about theater, and he read books and plays, and... He counted among his friends Lauren Bacall and uh, Judge Jim Garrison. And um, he, uh, I, I often think today that if he was alive, he would be probably a director on Broadway, directing plays and, and, and working with the, the greatest people in theater. I think that's where he would have been headed, yeah. Well, the record shows, and I'm just going through it here, that once you went through the most intense period of mourning about John Belushi, you then embarked on what one could argue was the most successful period of your career, certainly the hardest working career. You had one project after another, mm -hmm. nearly everyone succeeded. Was that or was that not your effort to put it behind you, to get your mind on other things? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, a script was offered to me, Dr. Detroit, turned out to be, of course, one of the most important movies I made because I met my wife, Donna, on that. And uh, we have three lovely children and, you know, hanging in there after 36 years of, uh, of, of marriage and 37 years together and, you know, still still there and um, uh, so that was the most important movie that was offered to me by a very uh, compassionate executive at uh, Universal Sean Daniel he offered me the movie and they and you know and, and he backed me up he said no we've got to give Aykroyd we got to get him back and so I did that consciously uh, that movie um, and uh, and uh, and uh, was able to meet Donna and was able to kind of sort of get my career back that wasn't a, a success that movie uh, outright but uh, it kept me in the game, kept me in Hollywood, kept me in the community, and then I was able to go on and write other things, uh, sort of sponsored by, by them. But that, you know, that was an example of uh, actually corporate compassion, if you will. You know, the, the executive said, this guy, you know, he's got a gift and he's hurting and he needs to, and I'm, we're going to give him this job. And, and he, he, put his, he put his career on the line to, to back me in that film. Corporate yeah. compassion, a lot of people think it's gone badly out of fashion these days. <laughs> There's not much of it, I don't know. Although you see... You know, uh, people in industry, you know, uh, especially these moguls in tech that are doing a lot of good for the world. I hope they keep doing it. When the Blues Brothers were hot, really becoming a worldwide phenomenon, there was some criticism, and along the lines I'm paraphrasing here, well, here are two white guys mm -hmm. who are taking basically black music and black mm -hmm. moves mm -hmm. and making a fortune out of it. Well, I have two words to say. Uh, Eric Clapton. I mean... Eric Clapton. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if Eric Clapton can do it and come off and revere the music and pay tribute to the music 
and make it successful. I, I, I think it's okay for us to, to step in there. I don't think it's a valid point. The blues is for everyone. Uh, there's so many great blues artists who aren't African-American, but fair enough for people to protect uh, the culture against cultural appropriation, but see, we did it in such a spirit of reverence and love for those performers. And the other thing we did was, well, Atlantic Records said, well, just, you're, you're, you're doing all these cover songs, just, just offer the, uh, the, the writers a percentage. You can get these, you can own all these songs yourself. Just give them 10 grand. We didn't. All the people that wrote songs for us, we said, no, we're gonna do, we're gonna keep mechanical royalties only, that is, performance royalties only. The original songwriters, they keep their royalties. We ain't making no special deal. Eddie Floyd gets his money. Donnie Walsh gets his money. All the people who wrote the songs in the, in the, in the show, uh, all of them got their full publishing uh, because we loved these artists. You know, we loved and respected them. Yeah, and we weren't going to do wrong by them. Dan, what's the worst thing that's happened to you in your life, and what did you learn from it? The worst? The worst thing that's happened to you in your life, and what did you learn from it? Oh, well, I suppose uh, John's death. Um, and uh, I learned that when friends reach out to you, you better get back to them quick because I missed a phone call from John. Um, he left a message on my answering machine and, and I was at a period where I really didn't want to talk to him because he was being so um, uncompliant with what his wife wanted and, and with what we wanted. And, and so I let a day go by and that day may have cost him his life and I let a day go by before responding and it was too late by the time I'd heard the message. Uh, he was gone. So that, when your friends reach out to you, get get back to them pretty quick. I think that's the, the lesson right there. And I live with that all the time. Now, maybe it might have not occurred, but but I, I, I missed that phone call. I heard his message and didn't call him back, and then the next day it was too late. Dan Aykroyd has long been a motorcycle enthusiast. So it's fitting that he chose to donate his 1971 Harley-Davidson to the National Comedy Center. Did your dad have a motorcycle? I know you were a motorcycle fiend. My dad did not. He had a lot of old, neat cars. But uh, no, I, I, uh, I'm here at the Comedy Center because I'm giving the motorcycle that I rode back and forth from SNL to Ontario on to the museum. And it's, you know, it's, it's I, I mean, I went up and down that New York thruway for four years on that bike consistently, uh, and so it's a wonder, uh, you know, that I, that I really am still alive. You were traveling between uh, Canada and New York. Yeah, and yeah, that's right. And so the bike, uh, I kept the bike, um, and we're going to give it to the center tonight. And that bike has had Gilda on there, uh, Lorraine Newman, Alan Zweibel, uh, Davis, uh, oh, uh, Bill Murray and I had a terrible ride for Martha's Vineyard. It was a monsoon, and by the end of it, when I hit the Roundel's Island exit there, I was crying, man. And I just think of, God, if, if anything wrong had happened, you know, you, we, we, there would be no Ghostbusters, because the two of them, two of us would have been killed, you know. Uh, and uh, so the bike had a, had a lot of personalities on it, and it conveyed me to the place of great comedy and great work, and, and uh, and good people and, and great memories for four years. So I thought it fitting that it, it end up here in a museum. What are you up to these days? Well, I have a brand of vodka, the Skull Vodka, Crystal Head Vodka. I thought that vodka. might come up. Well, I, you know, that's what I'm... 
Well, first of all, artistically, I still play with Jimmy uh, Belushi, uh, John's brother. Uh, he's Brother Z in the Blues Brothers Act, and uh, we've got a concert in December. So here, 40-some years after that thing was cr created, I'm still doing it. And uh, I move a little slower. I wear ankle and uh, knee uh, support, and I'm going to have to wear a girdle someday soon. But uh, the, uh, the, the music, the dancing, the African-American songbook just makes me feel so good. And I love playing, and I miss playing, and I do that. I'm also writing. Uh, my daughter and I are writing a, um, an, an idea based upon the Lilydale community. My daughter, Stella, she's 20. She's a graduate of Crossroads School in Los Angeles, and she's got the gift. She really does. And she's, since I lost Tom Davis, my writing partner, I've, I've been working with her, and she's terrific. She's like, no, Dad, they wouldn't say it like that. No, no, kids don't talk like that. No, no, you can't put that there. You're giving that away too early, you know. She's really, really a terrific partner. So we're writing stuff. I've got the Blues Brothers, and then I got the... The head vodka, uh, and um, well, let me ask you about the mm -hmm. crystal vodka, mm -hmm. which has obviously been very successful. It's available yeah. in what sixty-seven countries or something. Mm -hmm. I thought you were a tequila man. Well, I love Patron tequila, and always, always have. But you know, I began to research vodka and I find out that uh, that some lesser products, the stuff they put in it, then they put uh, glycerol, which is a cousin to antifreeze glycol. They put terpenes, which uh, you know, turpentine, terpenes, citrus oil. They put it in there to mask the smell of the alcohol, to mask the taste of the alcohol, and uh, and they put sugar in there. So I decided, come on, we got to do a cleaner way. Let's let's try to get clean with this vodka. So I went to the last state-owned still in the world, the corporation owned by the province of the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Distillery Corporation, owned by the province, and. I said, let's, let's use your beautiful aquifer water right under the, the still there's the water from the Wisconsin glacier that was over our planet 16,000 years ago. We draw that water up, stripped all the additives out, and we won the following notes from Anthony Dias Blue. You know Robert Parker's the wine yeah. guy. Anthony Dias Blue's yeah. the vodka guy. He said, crystal head, sweet, vanilla, dry, crisp, with a kick of heat off the finish. And I was in my truck on the PCH when I heard that, and I pulled over. I couldn't believe how those, I'm a vodka maker and I'm getting those notes with a 90 plus rating, wow. We're well, in man. 70 countries, we make it in Newfoundland, we're, uh, we're uh, very big in the LGBT community because there's some backlash against Russian vodkas and we embrace that community. But Crystal Head's for everybody. And I, I know the bar here has it in stock and I, if you, I don't know if you consume beverage alcohol in moderation or not, but. Only uh, in moderation, uh, I'd be glad. Like but I will say, I'm a bourbon man myself. Oh, you might uh, expect well, a Texas. Of course, to be. Uh, you bet. But I will say, uh, bourbon carries such a kick. If one's not careful, you can get knee crawling, mm -hmm. wall clawing, commode hugging drunk <laughs> yeah. off vodka. Uh, you can. Uh, well, everything in, everything in moderation, obviously, and I'm, I'm fortunate I don't have a problem consuming beverage alcohol, so I'm able to drink it. But what I tell people, six shots of Crystal Head, maybe eight, um, you know, over a night, and that's in drinks, obviously, and you, uh, you'll get no hangover because there's no, no chemicals in it. You're a better man than I. Put me down for one quick shot. Oh, yeah, well, I've, I've had them make a, a clear teeny, in other words, just a shaken martini for us, just to show you how clean and, 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 uh, and, uh, and how naturally viscous and, uh, and uh, basically just the, uh, uh, how the stripped down taste comes through in a martini. I think you'll like it. Dan, what question have I not asked you that you wanted to be asked? Uh, where, where do I think I'm going to be in 20 years? You know, that's, that's one question. Very yeah, good so, question. Yeah. Where do you think you're going to be in 20 years? Well, I'll be, I'll be, uh, 86, and um, I think uh, 
pretty much I'm going to be uh, up at the farm there in Canada. And um, I will probably uh, at that time uh, have to relinquish riding the motorcycle. But I hope to still be able to uh, operate my 1932 model 1604 limousine, Pierce Arrow limousine. The Pierce Arrow, of course, right. is the great old motor car that was built here in Buffalo, New York. And there's 200 of them in the, in the museum over there, and I, I'm feeling anxious to get over. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, where am I going to be in 20 years? I guess that's, that's the question I guess I ask myself. And I think I, I, I see myself more or less healthy, more or less mobile, uh, driving the stick shift, but not the motorcycle anymore. You know, I'm 86 now. Oh, you, are you, get out of here. No, no, I'm 86 Give now. Give me some of that DNA. <laughs> no, Whoa, no, no, no. no so, this is. So I'm where you're going. And you feel pretty good. Do. Yeah. Knock on wood. My God, good. my God. I hope I look half as good. Jeez. All right. Ready for that drink? Let's move to the bar and have a shot. Let's. We're going to have a crystal head martini. I think this is the way to drink it, and, uh, and we won't get any walking drunk, I promise you. Willing to try. Okay. What a treat this is. Cami is the bar owner here, and they've been in business for 23 years, Dan. And when, you, when you're in business in a bar, that, that, that's, that's, that's superhero ratings, man. Usually most clubs don't make it to seven. I was going to say just the last 24 years is no small accomplishment. Exactly. So that was my favorite sound, the shaking of a martini. Uh, uh, so what we're doing here, we've got the Crystal Ed Vodka. Again, as I told you, no glycol, no terpenes, no sugar. We stripped it out completely. We won the Moscow. Russia Prodexpo Award for Excellent Taste out of 400 beverages. So, you know, Japanese know their sushi and the Russians Listen, know their I'm vodka. not here to help you sell. No, no, but, I don't want to. But it. this looks like a collector's item. It, it, I have 200 of them in my barn because over the 10 years, I've, with, with friends, I've drank. I can't throw a bottle away. We've drunk that much and over many parties and that. But the thing is, most vodkas, you open them up, they smell like they are, uh, they, well, they, they smell like perfume. That's just good, clean ethyl alcohol there, you see. There's no masking in it. There's no... It is a clean smell. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no terpenes at all, nothing in it. And this is the way to drink it, just clean and, and nice. Uh, but you can have it in cocktails. Bartenders love it. It's the bar chef's friend. And you know what? I'm having fun, really having fun. I get to meet these legends in the industry, you know, these <laughs> houses of distribution that were started uh, after Prohibition. And that, the, you know, you meet the grandfather and the great-grandfather who started the, the, the thing and... Uh, and, you know, now I've handed it down to their, their, uh, their sons and daughters. Well, there's so, one who generally drinks this whiskey neat. This is quite a presentation. Cheers and courage. To you, sir. Well, it sure goes down smooth. Well, you get a sweetness there. The corn from uh, Chatham, Ontario gives us that viscosity and that sweetness. And then again, it's, it's kind of, it's really, it's like drinking alcohol and water, which is all it is. Yeah. To the great Dan Rather. To the great Dan Hackrow. Uh, to two pretty good Dans, I would say. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. something strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. 
Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.